Today we are in week three of our sermon series on the Godhead. Uh, we are looking at the, the nature and the character of God the Father, uh, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Our first week we looked at God our provider. Uh, last Sunday, uh, God our protector. And today we look at God as our identity giver. You know, identity is one of the very first things that uh, we become aware of when we're born. For the first years of our life, our family is uh, our identity. Uh, I was born uh, as the fourth of six children uh, to Bill and Midge, who had lived for many generations uh, in the same community. Uh, my two daughters, however, were born as PKs, otherwise known as preacher kids. Anybody a PK here? Okay, a couple of you praying for you. Hope the therapy helped. And they had a very different experience. They moved around from town to town, and they had very high expectations put on them from the community. And even though we passed on the same values and the same dreams to our kids, their experience of identity was much different than Melinda and me. But it isn't long before groups become our identity. They rival that of our family. Uh, it may be school or sports teams, or it could even be a hobby. In our high school in the late 60s and early 70s, we had five groups, uh, basically. That we had the jocks. Uh, we had the rednecks. We had the, uh, the marching band and the arts. We had the academics. I was never invited to that group. And uh, we had the, um, the hippies, which were kind of indigenous to that era. Now, of course, there was always some overlap, but you needed to have allegiance to at least one of these groups, or you're going to spend a lot of time by yourself. I mean, it determined uh, how you dressed, what classes you took, who you hung out with, what you did after school, even where you sat in the cafeteria. Is that true when you were growing up? Later on in life, it might be what university you attended. It might be your political party. It might be your career. It might be your social status, what country club you belong to. And just like childhood, these groups help determine uh, what we wear, what clubs we belong to, what we do on the weekends, even what car you drive. Did you know that? Yeah, if you drive a Ford uh, 150, uh, pickup truck, you are very, it's a good chance that you are a Republican. True. And if you drive a Subaru hatchback, there's a good chance that you vote Democrat. So you can figure out where you are if you drive something else. But even more importantly, these groups determine your place in the world, what you value, your, your beliefs, your ideals. And, and marketing people, they know all of this. They know how much we get our identity from groups and, and the power these groups have over us. Now, most of the time, these groups are benign, but can also be used to pit race against race or nation against nation. Our country is struggling with that right now. But the truth is every country does, and every once in a while it breaks out into horrible violence, uh, like in Rwanda in 1994, hundreds of thousands of people killed. Well, the text that we're looking at today is from Paul's letter to the Ephesians. It was written around 61 A.D. Uh, to the church in Ephesus. Uh, 
If you looked on a map today, you would find it on the Aegean Sea in western Turkey. But back in the first century, it was the fourth largest city in the world. And Paul arrived there around 53 A.D. Um, You can find the story in Acts 19. He began preaching in the synagogue for about three months, but um, there, there was, he made so little headway there that he went down the street to a public lecture hall and he taught the gospel there on a daily basis for some two years. Uh, he planted a church there. He appointed the leadership of, of elders and, uh, and then left for Greece and Macedonia to do more of the same. About ten years later, uh, he composes this letter and most likely from a prison in Rome. And the first three chapters... Uh, feel very differently from the last three chapters. In, in these last chapters, Paul talks about some unchristian behavior that is going on in the church, things that you wouldn't expect, like greed and sexual immorality and, and lying and rage and, and anger and, and even stealing. And you wouldn't think you would need that in a, in a mature Christian congregation, but apparently in Ephesus, this was an ongoing issue. But what does he talk about in in chapters 1 through 3? It's interesting. He begins in in verse 1, he he begins this way. He calls them God's holy people. Now, you you wouldn't think that people who are lying and stealing and and involved in other immoral things would would be called holy, but that's what Paul does. And then he breaks out into this doxology of praise in verse 3. He says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And then over the next three chapters, he begins to articulate what those spiritual blessings are. Listen, if you can pick them out. I'm going to start with verse 4. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world, to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us and the one he loves. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. And with all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reached their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. Verse 11. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will in order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of His glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in Him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are Christ's possession to the praise of His glory. Wow. What is Paul doing here? He's reminding them of their identity in Christ. He's telling them that that all things are are now theirs because of the work of Christ on the cross, that he chose us before the creation of the world, 
Because he loves us, he has adopted us, he has redeemed us, forgiven us, lavished his grace on us, marked us with the seal uh, of the Holy Spirit, saved us, raised us up, and seated us in the heavenly realms with Christ, and then brought Jews and Gentiles together into one body, the church. Paul is saying, in essence, remember who you are. Now, why does he do that? If I was Paul and I was writing that letter, I would have started right off in verse 1, chewing these people out for their bad behavior. You bunch of knuckleheads. It's time to get your act together. Stop acting like jerks. Get your life turned around. But Paul doesn't do that at all. He reminds them of who they are in Christ. And here's why. Usually, we behave the way we behave because we think the way we think. Isn't that true? We behave the way we behave because we think the way we think. This is really important. Because if you find yourself, if you find your identity in something that is temporary, what happens when it's gone? What do I mean? Well, let's say that you find your identity in, in your career, in your profession, and then 40 years you retire... What's your identity now? If, if your identity has been, been wrapped up in your appearance and you have your 40th birthday and you look in the mirror and you see all these wrinkles and you see certain body parts begin to sag, who are you now? If your identity is wrapped up in being a parent and you send that last one off to college, who are you now? We, even, we have a church member, Megan King. She's just written a book on how you find your identity as empty nesters. It's a big deal. So let's listen and hear what Paul has to say about who you are. First, he says, you are chosen. We are chosen before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless. God chose you. God had you in mind before the world was created. God created you in, uh, in his image. You're, you're no accident. You're no random mutation. The Bible teaches us very clearly that God has never made anything without a purpose. Proverbs chapter 16 says the Lord has made everything for his own purposes. Now I question that sometimes. I'm not sure what good poison ivy is or well, good mosquitoes are, but it says everything, that there's nothing that you see that God created that he'd say, I didn't have a purpose for that. <laughs> there's a purpose for everything that he creates, which means if you're alive here today, and I think most of you are, that if your heart is beating, you're not an accident. Regardless of the circumstances of your birth, you're not an accident. Your parents may not have planned you, but God did. And if you're alive, he's chosen you for a purpose and a reason for your existence. You are not an accident. And people who don't understand this, they, they just limp through life day after day, week after week. Why am I here? Same thing, same job. And they just drift. Job felt the, the same way. Job wrote, wrote, my life drags by day after a hopeless day. I am tired of living. My life makes no sense. You ever feel that way? But the Bible says in the prophet Jeremiah, 
Uh, the plans I have for you, says the Lord, are good, plans for good and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. So you've got to have hope. That's where you get passion. That's where you get enthusiasm. When you discover why God puts you on this earth, your motivational level is going to go up dramatically. And he chose you to be holy and blameless. And you're thinking, Pastor, I don't, I don't feel very holy. I don't feel very blameless. Well, the truth is I don't either most days. But remember what we learned our first week. First Peter, he says this. He says, his divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life. So it's not about how we feel. It's about what God has promised to do in you. He is working in you to love and to be loved and to be in this intimate relationship with the Lord of the universe, to know Him and to worship Him and to do His will. Paul says, remember who you are. But not only are we chosen, we're also adopted. Verse 5 says, in love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. I love that. In accordance with his pleasure and will. God, Paul didn't have to write that. But what he's saying is God has adopted you and me in his family because it made him happy to do so. You know, if you think of God as this cosmic, this grumpy cosmic force ready to pounce on you the first time you mess up, this should totally blow that out of the water. Paul says here that if you have come to know Jesus, your identity is the fact that God has adopted you into this family. Now, the, the, the Greek word that Paul uses here is, is a legal term referring to the full legal standing of an adopted male heir in Roman culture. You see, Roman culture in the first century didn't adopt children to help children without parents or because they were having fertility issues, but to provide a male heir. That was very important, first century, especially to the ruling elite families. If they did not have a male heir, they could lose their standing in society. And in the first century Roman life, it was not unusual to abandon unwanted babies. In fact, at the eastern gate of the city of Ephesus, there was actually a place where people could bring their babies they did not want, and they would leave them there for the gods to determine their fate. And so Paul is writing to a culture where babies were routinely abandoned. And he writes to these people and, and he says, if you have come to know Jesus, he says, your most defining moment isn't who threw you out, but, but who took you in. He, he picked you out, he picked you up, and he, he took you home. You, you ever been dumped? Dumped maybe by a, a girlfriend or a boyfriend, maybe by a spouse, maybe by a friend who decided they were done with you, maybe by your company Maybe you worked for them for 30, 40 years, and suddenly they said, we don't need you here anymore. There was an elderly man in, um, in a community where I used to live, and we became friends. His name was Wade, and I would go visit him from time to time. And during one of the visits, he told me the story of how at the age of five, his mother died. His father was away, had been away at work for several uh, weeks. He, he lit, worked on the railroad, and and uh, Wade sat alone in that house for several days with his mother's body until finally 
a neighbor woman came over and checked on them and made the discovery. Wade said about a week after the funeral, his father pinned a note to Wade's coat and told him to walk across town to his uncle's house. And he read the card and it said this. It said, you can have the boy and keep him if you want him. And after Wade told me this story, he pulled out from under his bed an old box full of letters. And he pulled out a yellowed postcard out and he handed it to me to read and I looked and there at the top were two little pinholes and I realized that was the note that his father had pinned on him some 80 years ago. And he said to me, Pastor, why do you suppose my father didn't want me? Why did he send me away? What's that like to be rejected? So Paul is saying to us, you belong. Your defining moment is not who threw you out, but who picked you up. God in Christ picked you out, picked you up, and brought you home. He adopted you as one of his own. God risked incarnation in Christ, invested the lifetime of Jesus, paid the price of suffering and death in order to adopt us. And all we have to do is is to enjoy the gift of his parentage, to to become heirs of, of life eternal, just to simply become little children and to receive it. We join the family of God through adoption, and baptism is the passageway into the family. And the thing is, we don't earn it. We don't deserve it. We don't merit it. We simply receive it. Salvation, and we get this wrong, we think salvation is for good people. It's not. Salvation is for redeemed people. See, there's a reason why Christians use that term, I have a relationship with God. Because there is something about being the precious, prized daughter or son of God. Your most defining moment in life is not what happened to you, but what God has done for you. Remember who you are. That's not all. In verse 7, we are told, We have redemption through the blood and forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. So what does that mean to be redeemed? What's that redemption mean? Well, Ephesus was the center of the slave trade for the Roman Empire for about a thousand years. And so if you had gone to the slave market, if you had lived in Ephesus in that first century uh, and and talked to a slave, the conversation might have gone something like this. Hey, who, who do you belong to? And the slave might say, well, I belong to Cornelius. Well, how did that happen? And he would say, well, as a baby, I got, I got dumped, and some guy and his wife uh, came by, and they picked me out, and, and they took me home and, and made me their servant, their, their household slave. And so for the first 13 years of my life, that's what I did. I, I worked for them, and then at the age of 13, they brought me to the slave market, and, and they sold me. Well, how much did they sell you for? Well, a lot, 24 pieces of silver, this man named Cornelius came with a, with a bag of money, and, and he, he redeemed me. He, he bought me. Now, if this guy had had an encounter with, 
the saving Christ, Paul wants him to know that his primary identity is not that of a slave to Cornelius, that there was somebody else who paid for him, who bought him. And so when Paul uses that term, in him we have redemption through his blood, he's saying what God used to redeem us was not money, it was not silver, it was not gold, but it was through his blood. When Jesus hung on the cross, he was paying the cost to save our souls for God. And so Christianity is not about doing enough for God so that he finally likes us enough. God buys us. He redeems us through the blood shed by him on the cross. Paul is saying, remember who you are. Finally, in verse 13, Paul writes this. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. You see, that seal is that mark of ownership. We talked about that uh, last week when I talked about how all my books have my seal on them so everybody knows who they belong to. See, it was a way of identifying what belonged to you. And here Paul is saying that the Holy Spirit in us is that identification that we belong to Christ. And not only our identification, he says, it is also a pledge of our inheritance. Now that God is our Father, it reminds us not, not only are there blessings now in Christ, but there are more blessings that we are to inherit in the life to come. We are at the very center of God's cosmic design because we belong to the risen Christ who is exalted over all the heavenlies. The Holy Spirit in us is that mark of ownership. And it's that Holy Spirit who, who whispered the other night, you know, when you were looking at the sunset and, and you saw those beautiful colors of blue and, and orange and red and, and you thought to yourself, oh, God made that. But you heard the Holy Spirit whispering to you, you are mine. Or when life doesn't go as planned and you're confused and you're frustrated and the way forward seems unclear and ambiguous, it's that voice inside of you, that Holy Spirit who says, you are mine. Or when you lay your loved one in the ground and you are crushed and, and broken, and yet through the tears you hear the Holy Spirit speak to you, you are mine. And the sadness doesn't go away, but it becomes a grief with hope instead of a grief with despair. Remember who you are. It's so easy to forget these days. So easy to lose our identity. I, I want you to hear Roberta Cabot talk of how she lost her identity and then how she found it. Let's listen. I had an older brother who um, sowed lies into me, and I think this happens for a lot of children, and I truthfully had what I call a trinity of lies, that I was fat, stupid, and ugly. I, I remember in high school holding my little face in the mirror and saying, it's too bad you are so ugly. And when you walk in your life that way, you walk in total defeat and fear and shame 
and um, condemnation, self-condemnation. I was afraid to meet people. I was sure if I talked to you for two minutes, you'd realize how stupid I am. In our healing school, we do a chapter on lies, the lies that we believe, and I was doing my doctoral work, and I did that chapter, and over and over, I began to see that I had been rejected, that when my father died when I was 12, I accepted that as a rejection, even though obviously he didn't want to die. But my mother then left and I was rejected, and my brother then left and I was rejected. And so that fed into all the lies and the depression and the worthlessness. And so I found this all out in the healing school, um, and I went home. I was in Ashland doing my doctoral work, and I closed the door, and, and the Lord just became present for me. And I can't explain this any other way to say, except he caught me up. And I saw God as like the Lion of Judah, and he was holding pre-embryo me. And, and my real name's Roberta, he's the only one who calls me that, but he was shouting to creation, this is Roberta, this one, not another one, this one, this is Roberta, my beloved, never rejected. And after that encounter, all the lies, the sense of rejection, the sense of shame, the sense of condemnation, all of that that I had walked in was healed. And now I truthfully know who I am. I know I am Roberta, never rejected. And as a matter of fact, he, he, he has me say, I am Roberta, God's beloved, never rejected. And until we know that about ourselves, this world's a very difficult place to live. So when I, when I met God and I began to understand the reality of him, I began to understand that part of my journey then would be to bring other people into the freedom and healing that I myself had received. You ever had your uh, identity stolen? It's a real growth industry right now, isn't it? And uh, they get a hold of some of your information and they pretend that they are you. And In fact, just last Wednesday, uh, somebody sent an email in my name to all of our staff uh, asking for money. And uh, fortunately, nobody fell for that. Well, they wouldn't have given me any money anyhow, but it happens. My friends, listen. Don't let evil, don't let the world... Uh, steal your identity. Don't believe the lies. You're not an accident. You were chosen. You have not been rejected. You are adopted into his family. You are not a slave. You are redeemed. You are not alone. You have the Holy Spirit living inside of you. And so we no longer need to change who we are based on the opinions of others. We don't need to worry about basing our identity upon, upon our career or upon our appearance, all the other things that we think gives our lives significance. When I remember that I am loved, I serve differently. When I remember that I'm adopted, I, I love differently. When I remember the price someone else has paid for my redemption, I give differently. And when I get angry at someone and feel my, my blood pressure rising, I remember that I am chosen by God for a purpose, and it doesn't include losing my temper over something that is trivial. 
when I remember who I am, I will live life to the fullest, giving glory to God. Let's pray. God, help us to, to see those lies in our life, things telling us who we are. God, we know the truth. We know the truth that we are yours, that we belong to you, that what you did on the cross 2,000 years ago has made all the difference, that we belong to you, that we are yours, that we are your children. And you have marked us and you have sealed us with the Holy Spirit. God, help us to embrace that reality, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.